church. Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So those who are wondering what book I'm going to next, it's Habakkuk. No, it's Matthew. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the title of the sermon is The Fullness of the Time. And once you are at Matthew chapter 1, if you're physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And here's what Matthew writes. He writes this, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, Abiad fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, and Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. So this is the Word of God. Let's uh, go to our Lord in prayer, and we'll get into it. God, we just thank you so much for your Word. We thank you for the Gospel of Matthew. We thank you for every single verse of the whole Bible, Lord, and we thank you for each book, and we thank you for this book, and we thank you that we're able to gather together and start this book, and I just pray, God, that you would help us understand what it means, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would speak through me, Lord, but remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess up your text, Uh, but Lord, that, that it's accurately explained and applied and Uh, We just pray, Lord, that, um, you know, if anybody here doesn't know you, that they would come to know you um, through the hearing of your word. And we pray for those who do know you, that they love you more and are more conformed to Jesus and are just in awe of you and the fact that you're a promise keeper, Lord, and that uh, we pray in everything you would be glorified. So, Lord, just may all glory go to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12 states a truth that we all can relate with. It says, hope delayed makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And this morning, I will have the pleasure of describing both of these realities. Hope delayed does make the heart sick, but undoubtedly desire when it's finally fulfilled is like eating from the tree of life. And in the case of what we're talking about today, this is quite literally true. 
Because the hope that was delayed for so long was something that once it was fulfilled, it brought people eternal life itself. This morning, I am beginning the Gospel of Matthew, the very book that opens the New Testament, the very book that opens with the most important announcement that has ever been made. And that announcement is nothing less than the good news, which is what the word gospel means, the good news. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, I'm paraphrasing it, Paul said that when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, so that he could redeem us. And that's the very truth that we're going to see this morning. So the point of the text is this. Jesus is the long-awaited hope of Israel and the world. Jesus is the long-awaited hope of Israel and the world. Now, how will the text show us this? It's going to display it with two components. First, it gives us the messianic announcement. And then second, it gives us the messianic genealogy, right? So with the messianic announcement and the messianic genealogy, it becomes clear that Jesus indeed is the long-awaited hope of both Israel and the world. And so, of course, I just got to let you know up front, I'm very happy to be starting Matthew. This is a pleasure to me. It's my pleasure to begin the book of Matthew because two reasons. One, I have yet to preach expositionally through a gospel. I've preached here and there from gospels, but I've never taken a gospel from start to finish. And so I'm very excited to finally get around to that. And then the second reason is Matthew has been on my heart for a long time. Some of you know I was planning on preaching Matthew for my previous book, but at the last minute I changed my mind and did Romans. And I'm glad I did that because there was more stuff I needed to learn about Matthew's world before I could preach this in a way that would do it any justice. And so over the last couple years, I was able to dive deep into that. And so as usual, as you guys know, if you've been at churches that have done expositional preaching for any amount of time, whenever we start a new book, there is a lot of necessary stuff we have to talk about first, right? The first sermon usually explains a lot of the background of the book. You know, the book of Matthew, like any other book of the Bible, it just didn't fall out of the heavens and land in our hands, right? The Holy Spirit used a human author to write to an original human audience, and he wrote exactly what they needed to hear. But since the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired these words, it doesn't just belong to that original audience, but it belongs to all churches in all times, right? Because it's not just the word of man, it's the word of God. And so a preacher has the task of first figuring out what the book was originally teaching to its original audience, and then what it's teaching to the church universally in all times. And of course, these two things aren't going to disagree with each other. They're going to complement each other. And then once that's figured out, we can then realize what's the Holy Spirit telling us here at Sovereign Way through this book. And so because of that, there's a couple things I need to do first before we get to the text. First, I need to give you some basic information about the book so that we could set it in its proper context. Second, I need to explain where Matthew, as a book, fits in the whole Bible, where it fits in the the entire timeline. And then third, I need to help us see the world as it was for Matthew and his audience so that we could read this with their eyes and, and really understand what's going on. I mean, that's very important for understanding Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, any of the Gospels, right? So with that said, let me get right to it. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? That's easy, Matthew. Done, right? Pretty easy. 
Of course, liberal scholars never make it that easy. They doubt Matthew's authorship, um, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. There is no credible argument against Matthew writing this. Every ancient copy of this book that has ever been found has Matthew's name in the title. It says in Greek, kata Matthion, right? According to Matthew, there is not a single copy that doesn't have that. Furthermore, the universal testimony of the ancient church all said Matthew wrote this. There's not a single voice of the ancient world that says Matthew didn't write this. And we have people as early as the early second century saying Matthew wrote this. So the burden of proof is on those who say he didn't to prove he didn't. And they don't have any good arguments. Okay, So Matthew wrote it, right? So then the next question is, who's Matthew? Well, he's going to bring himself up in chapter 9. But in short, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. He was one of the 12 apostles. The Bible refers to him by two names, which was common back then. Some places he's Matthew, and other places he's Levi. And before he was a follower of Christ, he was a tax collector. And I was talking about that in the last few sermons as I was going through Luke 15, right? And so I'm going to just review a little bit about what we know of Matthew's pre-Christ life, right? The tax collectors were the most hated people in Israel. They were traitors to their country. And so the way it would work is the Roman government would set the total amount of taxes that an area would owe. It would be called a ground tax. But then in addition to that, each individual that lives in that area also has to pay their own personal tax. So usually a politician or a rich person would pay for the right to the Roman government to collect taxes for that area. And sometimes they would pay the the total fee up front. And then they would go and shake the people down to get what they just paid to the Romans, but they were allowed to shake them down for a lot more. And the Roman government didn't care. As long as they got their money, they were happy. Well, these people who did this, they were called publicans. And to help with the process, they didn't want to be the ones going into a foreign country and shaking the locals down. So they would hire locals to be tax collectors who worked for the publicans. And so the tax collectors were the ones who then collected the money from the individuals in the area. And just like the publicans were able to collect more than they were owed, so could the tax collectors. Everybody was trying to make a profit. And so these tax collectors were bleeding their own people dry in order to make wealth for themselves. And they did all this to pay the Roman Empire, a pagan empire that treated Israel like they were worthless dogs. I mean, the Romans oppressed Israel extremely severely. They did so with a violent hand. Sometimes they would crucify hundreds of Jews at once and just leave their bodies up on the cross for days just to let everybody know who's in control. So the tax collectors were defying God's law and they were willing to sell their people out to kiss up to the Romans. The result was they were cut off from the synagogues. They were cut off from the temple in Jerusalem. Even their own families would disown them for the shame. And so what they would do is these tax collectors would form a new social circle with drunks, gamblers, and prostitutes because then they could all be immoral outcasts together. So pretty much, I say all this to let you know before Matthew came to Jesus, he was a pretty bad guy. Okay, He was, he was not a good fellow. However, to be that bad guy, to be that tax collector, he had to have a certain set of skills. And those were skills that God was going to redeem for the kingdom of God. See, in order to be a tax collector, Matthew would have to be a good writer. He'd have to be a good record keeper. He would also at least be fluent in three languages, possibly four. And so when Jesus calls this man to be a believer and also an apostle, those skills are now going to be used for good rather than evil. And those skills are what bring us this gospel. Of course, superintended by the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, God used Matthew and his skills. 
So we know that Matthew wrote it. We know Matthew was an apostle, a reformed, repentant tax collector. And so then the next question is, when did he write Matthew? There is debate, but I'll just make it simple. The internal evidence within Matthew itself, if you're reading it with a keen eye, is that this was written in the 60s of the first century. It's probably written about 30 years, a little more than 30 years, after the ministry of Jesus. There's a lot of reasons we know this, and I, and I don't want to go too much into the weeds on this, but Mark is almost universally recognized as the first gospel written. And the reason we know that is because Matthew uses 90% of Mark. Like 90% of it he uses. But then the rest, Matthew expands and emphasizes different things. And so what scholars have been able to determine is both Matthew and Luke use Mark as their source, as their general outline. They use Mark's material, but then they're going to pull from their eyewitness accounts and reliable oral tradition that the church has been preserving from the beginning. Okay, they're going to use that to fill in the rest. And just in case that raises a red flag, like oral tradition, how could it be? What about the telephone effect? Listen, that's not how oral cultures work. Okay, oral tradition is not passed from person to person in a chain transmission, like a telephone. No, it's passed in a net transmission. So Jesus would speak it to everybody, the apostles and all the followers. They all hear it collectively, and the group then maintains the integrity of what they heard. So if one person decides to say it wrongly, everybody else is like, that's not what he said. And so because that's the way oral tradition works in oral cultures, anthropologists have been able to show that some cultures will keep oral traditions unchanged for hundreds of years. Okay, so oral tradition's not a bad thing. So Jesus said a lot of stuff. John the Apostle told us it wasn't all written down, that if you wrote it all down, there's not enough room for all the books in the world. And so, of course, you have what's written, but then you also have the apostles and the early church holding on to a reliable oral tradition. We see it in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about divorce, and it looks like he's quoting Matthew 19. Yet Matthew wasn't going to be written for 10 more years. So where did Paul get that? That same collective group of material. They both pulled from the same thing. Okay. Now, you also add to that Matthew was an eyewitness, and so he's seen all this stuff too. And so he's able to put his own little flavor to it. Now, how that relates to when this was written is Mark was written in the late 50s, maybe 60. Okay, it's easy to pin Mark down. So since Matthew used 90% of his material... Okay, that's an indication that it wasn't that long after Mark was written and spread out. Additionally, Matthew mentions the temple in the present tense, and the temple was destroyed in 70. So that gives you the hint that, all right, the time frame is somewhere in the 60s. Okay, so Matthew wrote it. He's an apostle. It was written in the 60s of the first century. So the next question is, who was his original audience? Well, it's obvious when you study the book closely, he wrote to Jewish believers in Jesus. Okay, like if Jews for Jesus were a thing back then, they would be called Matthew's audience. Okay, he wrote it to people who likely lived in Israel, um, probably Galilee. And again, this gospel is so clearly Jewish in its flavor. It's got the most Old Testament quotations. It displays in-house arguments among the rabbinical schools that were common in the first century. Um, When customs come up that were common in Israel, he doesn't explain them. He assumes you know them, whereas when Mark and Luke bring up the same customs, they then explain them. Like, oh, Jews wash their hands, right, before they eat. Matthew doesn't explain it. He's assuming his audience already knows. Additionally, we have the the early church father, Papias, around the year 120. 
makes it clear. He said Matthew wrote this gospel to the Jews. Now, he said there was a Hebrew copy of it as well. That has been lost to history. What we have is an inspired copy of Matthew written in Greek, and it's, it's really good Greek. Um, so, again, what we have is the Holy Spirit-inspired version. And so, uh, you know, those are just key clues that he wrote to the Jews. But there's other things as well. Um, first, he pulls from a lot of Old Testament events and people. Um, and what he shows is these events and people in the past become prophet- prophetic foreshadowings, prophetic foreshadowings of Christ. And what this displays was a common way of thinking about history, common to the Jews back then, that history isn't just the past, but God is orchestrating history. It's kind of like a ladder. So something will happen, a person or an event will happen way in the past, and it's the bottom of the ladder, and then similar things will keep happening again and again and again until it reaches the final phase the final end-time version. And what Matthew does is he uses all these Old Testament people and events in this prophetic foreshadowing type of way to show Jesus is the culmination of them all. No other gospel presents Christ as the fulfillment that way. So again, very, a very Hebrew way of doing it. Matthew uses a lot of triads, meaning the number three. He'll set things in threes. He'll use sevens. All these numbers that were very important to Jews. Uh, We're going to see a little later, he uses gematria, where he'll take a word and take its numeric value, because the words had numeric values back then, to make a clear point. We see John do that in Revelation, right? You all know that. Revelation 13, the mark of the beast, it's 666, which equals his name. Matthew's going to do something very similar in our text this morning. So anyway, all that stuff is just a a rapid fire hose firing of, of, of pretty much all these things that show this was written to Jewish believers in Jesus. And so Matthew arranges it in a straightforward way. I don't know if you're going to remember this, but if you want to know how it's arranged, is it's divided into five parts. There's five what they call discourses, where you'll have Jesus do a big block of teaching, and then it's followed by a narrative, a big block of narrative. And then it ends with the key word, when Jesus finished saying this, right? And then it starts a new block of teaching, and a new narrative. It does that five times, right? So that's the whole content of the book. So if you're ever reading it on your own, just look for those. Now, those five discourses are surrounded by a beginning and an end. The beginning is the birth of Jesus and his anointing as Messiah, and the end is his death, burial, and resurrection, right? And so in between all that are those five big sections. Okay, and then the last question about the book itself, is why did Matthew write his gospel? Well, keep in mind, you had tens of thousands of Israelites believing in Jesus in the first century, but the, mo- but the majority didn't. And those who didn't were harassing those who did. So Matthew writes this to encourage and comfort and strengthen the resolve of the Jews who believed in Jesus. And he also wrote it as an argument against those who don't. Because if a Jew is going to read this with open eyes and an open heart, They cannot come to any other conclusion than Jesus is the Messiah. This is the gospel to prove it, right? If if I were to tell a Jewish person who is curious about the New Testament where to start, I'd say, start where God starts, read Matthew. And then if he's like, I got more questions, then then I'd say, read John. But, But you start with Matthew. This was written in part for that purpose. And then a last little nugget for church history nerds. This was the most popular book of the New Testament in the ancient church. They wrote more about Matthew than any other. Don't know what you're going to do with that, but maybe it'll be a question on who wants to be a millionaire, if that show's even still on. I don't know. 
Um, so anyhow, that covers the basic information about the book. So then the next thing I have to do is place Matthew, the book, in the broader biblical timeline. See, when you think of any given book of the Bible, you have to think, where does this piece of the puzzle fit in the whole? So one thing I want you to understand is the Old Testament ended 400 years before this. Now, let that sink in your mind. 400 years, God has not said anything new to Israel. From the moment God called Abraham, it was, you know, and then Isaac and Jacob, 400 years of silence from then till the Exodus, right? But from the time of the Exodus, God didn't stop talking to them for a thousand years. And then 400 BC, God stops. God stops talking to them. They have not heard from God. No new inspired scripture, no prophets, nothing like that. God has been silent. And then Christians come along 400 years later and say, God has spoken again. And we have it in the New Testament. And so if they were to hand the New Testament to any Israelite who is curious, and they open up to the very first part of this New Testament that claims to be God speaking again, the first book their eyes are going to land on is Matthew. The first words their eyes are going to land on are the words we read this morning when I opened up. Okay, So after 400 years of silence, these words we read are the first words that, 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 that God has the reader here. Even though Mark was written first, Matthew was meant to be read and heard first. That is why it has always been placed at the beginning. And so we need to understand the grand narrative so we understand what Matthew's doing here. Okay, the Bible presents a meta-narrative, a grand narrative that is the king of all other narratives. It is the true history of both God and humanity. And so what it tells us, and I'll go quick through this, is that God created the universe in perfection. He created humanity in perfection. But as the book of Genesis tells us, Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebelled against God at the instigation of Satan. And so then what happened was sin and death entered the world. The cur this cursed the entire cosmos, the, the creation, everything, the earth, the universe. Okay? Now things die. Creation is now a dangerous place. People are evil. Just look in the mirror, right? And also look at what goes on in the world. People are evil. Animals are violent. Nature is destructive. And humanity just continues to plummet into greater, greater rebellion and wickedness. Well, this happened early in our history. So God flooded the earth and started over with Noah. And from Noah's sons come all the nations that exist, all the ethnic groups, all the languages. And yet humanity's rebellion has continued. And so what we saw in Genesis 11, or Genesis 12, excuse me, is God starts to reverse the curse by calling a man named Abraham. God promised to make a special nation out of Abraham. That nation was Israel. God also promised to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's descendant or his offspring. Now, that calls us back to Genesis 3.15 because God promised Adam and Eve that he would send a savior, one who will crush the head of Satan. Right? And so then, long time later, God calls Abraham and says, It's through your offspring that the whole world will be blessed. So, same guy, the one that was promised to Adam and Eve, is the same one being promised to come from Abraham and to come from Abraham's nation, which would be Israel, the nation that comes from, from Abraham. Right? And so, over time, Israel grows into a big nation. They then get enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. God then rescues them. He destroys Egypt with 10 plagues. He leads Israel into the wilderness for 40 years and then brings them into the land of promise, the land of Israel, where they overthrow and conquer the pagan, uh, uh, the evil pagans that inhabited it, right? So God's fulfilling all these promises. 
But then once Israel's in the land, we know what happens, right? They start sinning. They start worshiping other gods. So at first, God raises up their neighbors to harass them, to say, hey, stop worshiping these other gods. Eventually, Israel then demands a king because they want to be like the pagans around them. So God gives them the king they want, King Saul, who is an utter failure. And then after Saul fails, God gives them the king he wants. And who's that king? King David. King David, a man after God's own heart. And God then makes a covenant with David like he did with Abraham, that, that it would be a descendant of David who would be this guy, who would be the king of kings, the one who would bless the nations. He would be the savior that fixes everything Adam and Eve broke. So great promise, high point with King David. But then over the next 400 years, David's descendants consistently failed and plunged Israel into even greater sin. And so God destroyed their kingdom. He removed their kingship. David still had a line of descendants, but none would be kings. And they'd all be dragged into exile in Babylon. After 70 years in Babylon, God allowed Israel to return to the land, but they were never going to be autonomous really again. So they're ruled by the Persians. Later, they're ruled by the Greeks. And if you know anything about the Greek period, the Greeks were horrible to them. In the 160s BC, a Greek ruler tried to eradicate the Jews, tried to eradicate their religion. He destroyed biblical books. He killed people who were circumcised. He killed parents who circumcised their kids. He uh, would, if you were found with the biblical scroll, you were killed. He tried to force you to sacrifice pigs to Zeus. If you won't, he would kill you. And he even defied the temple. It's a horrible time. Now, after three years of that, the Jews revolted and won, and they set up a somewhat independent kingdom, but it wasn't David's sons who were ruling it. It was corrupt. And so then God sends the Romans, the most powerful empire in history, and they take up, and they, they take over, and they're super oppressive as well. They let the Jews keep their religion, but the Romans left an army there to keep control and to shake them down with outrageous taxation. The Romans would brutally kill anyone that they saw as a threat. And Israel was no match for this powerful empire. And then, to make matters worse, Rome takes a foreigner, King Herod, and makes him their king. And then Herod does all this immoral stuff. It was almost just like insult to, to injury. So think about that. That's Israel's history. That's the history of the world up to this point. Israel had been suppressed for so long that many were losing hope. What about all those promises God made? Will he actually fulfill them? Well, Israel was oppressed and God had not talked for a very long time, 400 years. So what do you do when you have a body of scripture, the Old Testament, but God's not talking anymore? You do what we do, right? We got a completed Bible, but what do we do? Theologians study it and study it and then pastors teach it. The Jews did the same thing. They studied it and they wrote a whole bunch of stuff in that 400 years of silence. I know because I had to read like 80% of it and it took forever. Had to read it for a class. And so it showed you kind of how they were diving in and how they were interpreting the text and how they were trying to keep their hope alive. And just like with Christians, we have denominations. So did they, right? You would have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, Herodians, and Hellenists. And I'll explain these guys as they come up in the various points of Matthew, okay? But the one thing they all had in common is they realized that Israel's only way to survive was to at least be faithful to what God has already revealed, what he revealed in the Old Testament. And so they came up with a vehicle for that. And that vehicle was called the synagogue, 
where every Saturday, every Shabbat, the Jews would gather together and they would hear God's word read and they would hear it explained or interpreted by the religious leaders. And of course, there were ways they did this, things like Midrash, and I'll be talking about some of that when we see it in Matthew, okay? But one thing they did is they added a lot of extra traditions because they thought this would help them obey God's word better. And although the motive was good, this is going to make them run headfirst into a wall called Messiah when he disagrees with their man-made traditions, okay? But anyhow, with all that history, by the time you get to Jesus, expectation in Israel was high. The rabbis had been telling them that when Messiah comes, the Romans will finally be overthrown. Israel will rule the world. Everything would finally get better. In fact, they had a Hebrew phrase for it. This world... This world of, of death and sin and sadness is called the Olam Hazeh, which means the present evil age. But when Messiah comes, it's all going to go away. We're going to have the resurrection, so there will be no more sin, and that will be the Olam Haba, the perfect age to come, where there will only be joy. So these things are taught again and again, Shabbat after Shabbat. And then every time, they, they have their hopes up, but then every time they leave the synagogue, they look around, and what do they see? The increasing oppression from the Romans and the growing sin among the Israelites. People like tax collectors selling out their own people. So the people of Israel at this point in time are vulnerable. They're caught between hope and doubt. Will the Messiah ever come? Like, I, I hope he will, but I doubt he will. Because look what I see is kind of where they were at. You know, they'd be thinking, God hasn't spoken in 400 years. And that's what Matthew wants to talk to them about. He has good news. He has a word from God for the first time in 400 years, right? And so the gospel means the good news. And Matthew is ready to tell them that the turning point of all history has happened. And that's how he begins our text. And so, yes, hope may have been delayed, but Matthew is announcing that desire has now been fulfilled. And so that brings me to the opening of Matthew. I know that was a lot of buildup, but we had to have the context of the book. We had to have the context of, of where it fits in the Bible. And we had to have the world of Matthew reconstructed. because So now it's all there. And we could jump into verse 1 with all that context set for us. So I cannot stress enough how powerful the opening words of Matthew are. I'm going to be spending most of my time on verse 1. It's so powerful. Okay, so look at verse 1. It says this. It says... An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, what I just read in English is the king of all understatements. That is an understatement. This is why it's sometimes good to know the original languages. Let me tell you what it, was, what it, what it really says, how the original readers would have seen it. First, understand that even though it's written in Greek, the original audience is going to have Hebrew words that they're going to be thinking about. And this is what they would have heard. Which means this is the book of Genesis of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Now that screams significance. Okay, now our translations translate this genealogy because a genealogy does follow. But the emphasis is a lot more than a genealogy. In the Greek, the phrasing is, is as follows. Here's the words. The first two words of this verse are biblas geneseos, which I know everybody knows what that means, right? It actually means book of Genesis. That's what those words mean. This is the book of Genesis is what it's starting off saying. Now, there's only two places where this exact phrasing happens in the Old Testament. 
Okay, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the Greek-speaking Jews back then used, the, the Septuagint, there's only two places they're going to find these words. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Let me start with chapter 2, verse 4. It says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. Okay? And, and, and literally, in the Greek, what that's saying is that this is the book of the Genesis of the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of creation. Okay? And then in Genesis 5, 1, it says, same words, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. So I want you to think about that. Again, the Greek literally would say there, this is the book of the Genesis of Adam and his descendants. So the reason I'm stressing this is the first two words in this opening line of the New Testament is continuing something that is only found at the beginning of the book of Genesis. You have a book of Genesis or a, a record of the creation of the world. You have a book of Genesis or a record of the beginning of Adam, okay, beginning of humanity. And now, for the third time only, you have a book of Genesis or a book of the beginning of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the original Jewish reader would have instantly saw the connection. See, the first two words in this Greek text would signal to them something on a cosmic scale is being announced. The first time these words were ever used, God announced the creation of the universe. The second time they were used, God announced the creation of man, of humanity from Adam onward. So these words signify the beginning of creation and the beginning of humanity. That's what these words signify. So the question that should immediately pop up in the mind of the original reader is what is Matthew saying here? What is he announcing? Is he announcing a new creation or instead is he announcing a new humanity? And the answer is yes. Like, but we said or. No, but the answer is yes. Because here's the thing. It goes without saying that the old creation is broken. And it goes without saying that humanity is broken. The one man, Adam, somehow pulled it off to where he could break both. He broke creation and humanity. And so the Old Testament signified that God was going to do something about this. Before God to do something about this, it would require a new heavens, a new earth. It would also require a new humanity to inhabit it. It would require a world where there is no curse or no death. And that would require a world where there is no sin. Well, all that would require then a humanity that cannot sin and a place where no one can die and nothing could die, right? And so God announced that this day would come, that this world would come through Isaiah the prophet. Here's what God says in Isaiah 67, 17. He says, for I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. So he says there's going to be this new creation. And then what does it say? What does the Old Testament say about a new humanity? Well, there's an R word, resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection where the righteous would be raised immortal like we were before the fall. It even gives hints that we'll be greater than we were before the fall. And the New Testament will definitely confirm that. Okay, so what that would require for a new humanity that is immortal, it would require a new head of the humanity to replace the old head of the humanity, Adam. And the Jews had a word to describe who that person was, Messiah. And Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name, and he certainly doesn't have a middle name that has the initial H, okay? The thing is, Christ is a title. 
I prefer using the word Messiah because for my whole life, using it as a curse word, I thought it was his last name, you know, Christ, because I was not raised Christian. Okay, so for me, it helps me remember, this is the title, this is the king. Okay, so Messiah is the word, it's the name for this person. So that is what makes the next two words then so significant. He announces a new beginning, and then the next two words are Jesus Christ, or Yeshua, the Messiah. Okay, the first two words signify a new creation and a new humanity, but then the second words confirm their suspicions through whom it must come. So again, if we look at verse 1 in our English translation, it says an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But again, what they're hearing is the book of Genesis of Yeshua, the Messiah. Matthew is announcing this Messiah has come. He is announcing the King of Israel. But then again, in the Jewish mind, that would pose another question. If this is the King of Israel, then he has to be an heir of David, right? Again, Psalm 132, 11, God says this. It says, the Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. Or Jeremiah 23, 5. Jeremiah says, look, well, God says this, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Okay? And so the promises make it clear David is going to have a son on the throne. But there's other promises that make it clear that this person is not going to be like David's other sons. He's not going to be a regular human. He's going to be someone who lives and reigns forever. So look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel from me, or for me. His origin is from antiquity, or in Hebrew, from eternity, from ancient times. Right? And so pretty much this one comes from eternity. He's not like the rest of us. Isaiah, a contemporary of Micah, writes this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. He says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Now, those are very clear words. This son of David is from eternity, and he will be called mighty God, and he will be that man who sits on David's throne, David's descendant, who's from eternity, but lives forever and reigns forever. How can a mortal man of our humanity, the old humanity, do that? Can't. So that's why the Messiah was understood to be more than just a new David. He also had to be a new Adam, where Paul will take us there twice in Romans uh, 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. So this Messiah is a new David and a new Adam, a new, uh, ahead of a new humanity. So if this is then the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah, then is he the son of David? Because that's what the expectation says. Look at the next two words in verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Everything's lining up for what they would expect to follow, each word from another, right? So Matthew's first Jewish readers, their ears would be perked up. 
We've had 400 years of silence from God. We've had the nations oppress us and and put their, their knees on our backs, on our spines. And we're wondering if God's forgotten about us. And yet you're saying the chosen one's here. You're saying he's the savior of Israel? Okay, if he's the savior of Israel and he's going to bring in all the stuff you're talking about, then he also has to be the ultimate son of Abraham. Is he? Well, to that, look at the final two words of verse 1. Again, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So, Matthew, are you saying that this Jesus is Ben David and Ben Abraham? Because God made a covenant with both of them. Okay, he's supposed to come from both of them. God started to reverse the curse with Abram. And the reason we know that is God uses the word curse five times in Genesis 1 through 11. And then in the first three verses where he calls Abraham in chapter 12, he uses the word bless five times. And the final blessing is talking about him blessing the whole world. Genesis 12, 3 ends by saying all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. The final end of the curse, right? That's what it says. And then later in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God made it clear that it's that God's going to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. Again, it's talking about the Messiah. The Old Testament made it clear that it's the Messiah that does this. And so, of course, there's a little bit of a quandary because the Old Testament also tells us Messiah is going to destroy the nations. So how could he bless the nations if he's going to destroy the nations? If he's going to destroy the Gentiles, okay, how does he save them? Well, the Old Testament also has other verses that tell us many will survive from the nations. And they'll actually, in the perfect age to come, worship God with Israel. Now, it doesn't tell us how that's going to happen in the Old Testament. The New Testament does. The Old Testament doesn't say how it's all going to happen. It just says it's going to happen. And so what was clear, though, is in the Olam Haba, the perfect age, Gentiles will be there as well, worshiping God along with Israel. Okay, And that's how... The Messiah, being the son of Abraham, is going to bless the whole world. So pretty much, this downtrodden people, the Jews, who felt like hope abandoned their land, were raised on hearing the mighty acts of God from the past, and they were raised on hearing even of the mightier promises to come. A new earth, a new humanity, a new David, the blessing of Abraham, a.k.a. the perfect age to come. It seems so far off, though. It seems so impossible to be living in their context and think that this could be happening. And yet Matthew is saying, oh, it's happening. This is the announcement of the king. This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the heir of David, the seed of Abraham, the bringer of the new creation and new humanity. That is what is all packed into this opening announcement. And I believe that as God starts to remove the partial blindness and hard hearts from Israel today, that their eyes will fall upon this opening verse of the New Testament and they will see that the silence was truly broken 2,000 years ago. The power of this opening sentence, it will be impossible to escape them. Okay, right now, many hearts are hard and eyes are blind. But as God starts drawing more Israelites to look at the New Testament, the magnitude of this announcement will give them hope again, just like it does to me and the remnant of believing Israelites. Now, a little little story about this, just the impact of this. Three years ago, Rachel and I were flown to Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, to be filmed in a documentary that's meant to be an outreach to Jews, okay? And it still hasn't finished post-production, but hopefully it will soon. I don't know what this dude's issue is, but anyhow. Um, 
But when he sent me the script, I looked at it and said, no, 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 this script is awful. It was just a typical type of script that, like, that you see you know, for regular evangelism anywhere. But I said, look, this is not how Jews think. This is, they're going to read this. It's going to have no impact. It's going to sound like some Gentile religion that doesn't speak to the, to the Jewish ears at all. And so I rewrote a script saying this is what will be more effective. And of course, the guy was trying to hold on to his, but I wasn't the only Jew that was brought on this. So one of the, the other men brought on to be filmed, Ed Griffinhagen, an, an older man, a pastor out of Tennessee, he looked at my script and said, no, we got to do this. We got to go with this one. And his argument was just perfect. His argument was his testimony. And once he gave his testimony, nobody could argue with this, right? He grew up Jewish. He never thought for a second that Jesus could be the Messiah. He had decades of Jewish teaching in his head that he heard from the rabbis. But in his late 20s, he hit an existential crisis. And so to find out what he really believed, what did he do? He read the Hebrew Bible carefully, cover to cover. And when he closed it, he was not comforted. He didn't say, ah, the answers are here. He closed it and asked, is that it? Are you kidding me? That's how it ends? It ends with a bunch of loose ends. Where's the new creation? Where's the resurrection? Where's Messiah Ben David? He thought to himself, these loose ends have been here for 2,500 years. Obviously, this is not true. People wrote their hopes down in 2,500 years. People are still reading it, expecting this. This is garbage. So he was almost about to walk away from it all. But a thought popped in his head and he said, okay, I'm going to try something. So he secretly bought a New Testament. He had to hide this fact from everyone in his family, everyone in his life. And he read it. And this first verse hit him, just as I'm saying. It announced all those loose ends in one verse are being tied up. And by the time he got to the end of the book of Revelation, he realized every promise is completed. I mean, the ones that haven't come to pass yet, they will. And it explains how they will. The bottom line, though, is every loose end is tied up by the time he gets to the end of it. And so he had no choice. He's like, Jesus has to be the Messiah. The New Testament convinced him of it. And so his existential crisis was over. Now he had a different crisis. What's his family going to do to him once they find out he believes in Jesus? And of course, I wish I could say that had a happy ending. I don't think it did. Um, I think his dad, if I remember his story right, still died with the attitude, I have no son. And so, uh, but one day that sad story won't repeat itself. One day God will draw more and more Israelites to his word and they will see, like Ed saw, that all the promises are fulfilled in Christ. They're all a yes in him, okay? And so I bring his story up because it illustrates the magnitude of Matthew's opening line, exactly what it means and what it says. It illustrates how Jewish eyes and ears will see it once God begins to draw them. It illustrates how without this verse and what comes after, really the Hebrew Bible is a bunch of empty promises that have remained empty for a very long time. But with this verse, we realize the Bible is true. Every single word of it, the promises, all of them have been fulfilled or are being fulfilled or will be fulfilled. And so this messianic announcement is nothing less than the announcement of the good news. And that is why it's called the good news of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. So with that said, this is the messianic announcement. It would naturally be followed then by a messianic genealogy. Because if you're saying this guy's the king, well, you need to prove it. And so that's what we will be spending the rest of the time looking at. Now, before I go over it, let me just tell you what I'm not going to do. That way I could ease any concerns you have. I'm not going to stop and give the history of each person or name on this list. We would be here all day. 
when Matthew wrote this, he had the expectation that his readers would know who each of these guys are, except for the names at the end. And I'll explain why for those a little later. Now, understand, his audience was mostly illiterate. They would be hearing this, and yet they would still know who these people are. Why? Because they paid attention as the Old Testament was read and explained year after year in the synagogue. And I'm just going to say this as a loving, gentle rebuke. If you've been a Christian for a decent amount of time, you should know who each of these people are as well, except for the people in the third part of the genealogy. There's no reason not to know who these people are. I started reading the Bible cover to cover every year in 2005, and I haven't missed a year. By 2007, so that means I read it two times, Okay, just a casual reading, not studying, casual reading. Two years later, I started uh, my first seminary class, an Old Testament survey, and I knew who all these kings were without having to read those books, just from reading the Bible. Just from reading the Bible, I knew who these names were. Okay, and Matthew expected his audience to do so. That's why he doesn't explain these guys. He just goes right into it. So if you don't know who these guys are, please read the Old Testament more. You can't just keep going back and reading like John all the time. That's good. If you want to read John all the time, fine. But add a couple chapters of the Old Testament each day because that's the word of God as well. The only things I'm going to stop to do in this genealogy is I'm going to stop at the places where Matthew wants us to stop. There's certain things he does here that scream at us. You know, that break the flow, and he wants you to look at those, okay? And so I'm going to try to go through it quickly. Also, another thing first that I'm not going to do is I'm not going to compare it to Luke's genealogy, right? (laughs) Again, we'll be here forever. If you've been a believer for a while, then you know Matthew and Luke have very different genealogies for Jesus. Uh, Matthew's is in descending order. Luke's in ascending order. Matthew starts with Abraham. Luke ends with Adam. And then where these uh, genealogies should converge, they actually diverge. There's some overlap, but there's a lot of difference. Luke has way more names. Okay, so I'm not going to solve this for us now. I just don't have time. What I'll tell you is I believe the argument that Matthew is presenting, um, uh, he's presenting Joseph's genealogy, establishing Jesus' right to be the king, Jesus' royal lineage, because he's Joseph's adopted son, and that lineage would still pass to him. I believe that Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy. Even though it says Joseph in that one as well, the uh, custom of Levite marriage could easily explain that. So Mary gives him a biological connection to David, but Joseph gives him a royal connection to David. And so I think that's what's going on there, and that's all I'm really going to say about that. There's been so much written on this. There's a a lot of, uh, you guys could pretty much get trapped in a vortex if you go down that rabbit hole. Might be worth it if you have time. Anyhow, let's take a look at the genealogy. Matthew breaks it up into three segments because, again, he likes threes. Okay, so let's look at the first segment, verses 2 through 6. He writes this, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. So simply put, this takes us from Abraham to David about a thousand years. And you could construct this genealogy from Genesis, Ruth, and Chronicles, right? And so it goes through the names that every Jew would be familiar with. Okay, so no need to call our attention to that. But there are two things Matthew wants us to notice. First, 
He breaks the cycle of A fathered B and B fathered C when he gets to Judah. He stops and mentions Judah's brothers as well. So he says, uh, you know, uh, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. And the reason why he does this, two reasons. One, the Messiah is the Messiah for all 12 tribes of Israel, but he can only come from Judah. Okay, so he's not just the Messiah of Judah. He's the Messiah of all of Israel, but he can only come from Judah, which brings us back to Genesis 49.10, that the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah, okay, that the ruler will come from him. That's the first reason he calls, you know, brings up Judah's brothers. The second reason is it's to signify that with Judah and his brothers, they're leaving the land of promise. And the reason we know that is in the second part of the genealogy, he's going to do the same thing with Jeconiah. And so they're parallel. And so I'll come back to that when I get to the second part. Now, the second thing to note from this first part of the genealogy is a lot more noteworthy. It mentions three women so far. Jewish genealogies normally don't do that. But it mentions Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. What do all three of these women have in common? Actually, three things. If you're thinking just one thing, no, three things. First, they were all Gentiles. Second, they all had children under unusual circumstances. And then third, two of them were guilty of prostitution and one was a Moabite. And so they were never supposed to be included in Israel. And yet God showed each of them mercy and grace and he saved them and they were incorporated into his people. Okay. And the key thing is with these three women... Each of them gave birth to a prominent person in the, in the lineage of Messiah. And yet all of them were born on unusual circumstances. Now, why would Matthew bring women up who give birth to significant people under unusual circumstances? Because fitting with the pattern of history, Messiah is going to be born in the most unprecedented of circumstances. Okay, And so Matthew wants you to catch that. Now, moving on to the second part of the genealogy, it now goes from David's kingdom until it was destroyed. So the first part records where God fulfills all these promises, and then the second part shows how Israel ruins all these promises. And so they blow it. Look at verses 6 through 11. They say, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Okay, so a few interesting things about this part of the genealogy. First, Matthew goes out of his way to showcase Jesus' royal pedigree at this point of the genealogy. And, and, and what do I mean by that, right? Well, it's very interesting because this is what a Jewish audience should expect. Why? Well, if I were to ask you what is the final book in the Old Testament, what would you tell me? Malachi, right? Malachi, the only Italian prophet. No, Malachi. But... Malachi is only the last book of the Bible in the Christian ordering of the Old Testament. The Jews order the Old Testament differently, and they've done so even back in Jesus's day. There will be things that Jesus says, and I'll point them out when we get there, that make it clear he used the Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament, okay? And the first time we see this is 150 years before he was born and Yehuda ben Syriac um, in, in his writing. And so the way the Jews ordered the Old Testament was in three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the final book in the final section, the writings, was the book of Chronicles. First and second Chronicles were, were one book. So what is Chronicles about? 
for those of you who know. It's all about the royal genealogy. It goes into details about these very people. Every name on this list, it gives us how they were all messed up, or some of them were all right, but most of them were messed up. But it goes through the royal genealogy. Okay, now why is this significant? Because again, the last words the Jews read from God. Okay, and remember, he hadn't spoken in 400 years to them. The last words they read was a word about the failed descendants of David, and yet still the hope that God will keep his promise. And then they open up the New Testament with this magnificent announcement, and then the very next thing they read is the very names that the Old Testament ended with. It picks up right where the Old Testament left off. Okay, and now it takes us from those kings to the king, the Messiah, Jesus. Right, So that's significant. Now, second thing worth mentioning is Matthew actually leaves off four kings from this list. Okay, Three of them were related to the wicked Ahab of the northern kingdom through the marriage to Athaliah. Um, so I can understand if you're going to leave anyone off, it's them. And then he'll leave off um, Jehoiakim as well. And what that tells you is he's not saying these guys aren't legitimate heirs to Jesus. They were. He's descended from them. It's showing us that Matthew's actually not intending to list everyone. That's why Luke has more names than Matthew. Matthew's letting you know right here, because people, Jews hearing this will be like, wait a minute, he left four guys off. They would know. They have these lists memorized. And so what Matthew's doing is he's doing something clever with the numbers here. I'll show you that cleverness in a little bit. But the third thing worth mentioning is just like Judah, Jeconiah is mentioned with his brothers, which makes sense because he and his brothers went off into Babylon, just like Judah and his brothers went off into Israel. Okay? Now, the final thing to note of the second part is that Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, is not mentioned by name. Isn't it peculiar? The wife of Uriah is how, is how Matthew does this. Why, why would he do that? Why mention the other women but not Bathsheba? The only thing I could think of is Uriah was a Gentile. He was a Hittite. Bathsheba might not have been, but she married into his Gentile family. So this is one more way of emphasizing that first, Solomon had an unusual birth because the woman that David fathered Solomon with was the wife of a Gentile. So it shows the Gentile connection and it shows the um, unusual birth connection. So four women that give unusual births to very important people. So with that, we now move to the final part of the genealogy. This is the one part where we all have an excuse not to know who these people are. Okay, verses 12 through 16. It says, After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad. Abiad fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Methan. Methan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, the second part of the genealogy showed how Israel blew it before God. This final part shows how God is still faithful to the promises, nevertheless, and so it carries us from the exile to Messiah himself. Just a couple things that need our attention from this list. First, after the name Zerubbabel, we have no information about any of these people because they lived after God stopped talking. Right? They lived in that 400 years of silence. So we don't know who they are. Now, what we do know is the Jews kept really good genealogies back then, which were destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. But this was written before then. And so Matthew had access to these things, and he's pulling these names from those records. The second thing to note is Matthew goes out of his way here. And this is interesting to show that even though Jesus has the royal title through Joseph, he goes out of his way to show Joseph is not the biological father. 
again, and he's going to make this clear in the next part, you know, the text I'll be preaching next time, you know, with the whole virgin birth, but he's hinting at it even here. I mean, if you look at this, this, this genealogy kept saying A fathered B, B fathered C, C fathered D, and so on. The verb fathered was in the active voice because A is the one fathering B. He's doing the fathering, okay, active voice. Only here at the end does it switch. And it doesn't use the active voice, but it uses the passive voice. It doesn't say anybody fathered Jesus. Instead, it says Jesus was born. Significant. Everybody else is fathered, but Jesus alone is born. And he's born of Mary. Okay, so it is going out of its way in the Greek to signal that something is different about Jesus' birth. It's unusual. Mary, this fifth woman being mentioned, also has an unusual birth here. And this kid isn't fathered, but he is born. That's what the Greek verbs point at. And then if there are all these hints and people are like, is this what he's saying? He will clearly come out and just say it in the next part of the text, which we would get to next time. That's what the rest of chapter 1 is all about. So it's kind of interesting how he throws that even in the genealogy. Now, in verse 17, Matthew closes it. He sums up the genealogy with his own bit of commentary. He writes this. He says, So all of the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. So if you notice, Matthew is neatly dividing these three eras into 14 generations each. Well, you might remember, but wait, he left names out. He left four names out from the second part. So that means it's not literally 14 generations. Correct. And again, if you compare it to Luke's genealogy, Luke's got a lot more names in certain parts of this. So if it's not literally 14 generations, why is Matthew saying there's 14 generations in each part? What is he doing? Well, it's kind of fascinating if you ask me. Jews back then did something that was called gematria, where they would take the numerical value of a person's name and they would make a point with it. As I said, the New Testament gives us a very famous example in Revelation, the mark of the beast. The beast's name is 666. How does that work? Well, Hebrew letters were also used for numbers. Whatever order the letter was in the alphabet, that was its number. So you could take the letters and add them up, and whatever that number is, that's the number of their name. Matthew is going to do that here because he noticed that in reality there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, and David is the 14th one mentioned. So he found that significant, and so what he wanted to do was present the next two legs with the number 14 as well. And the number 14 is screaming in a very invisible way that you have to look for, but it's screaming, this is the royal bloodline. And what do I mean by that? Well, David's name in Hebrew, when you're doing the number thing, equals 14. Okay, his first letter, Dalet, is four. That's the fourth letter. Vav is the sixth letter. And then Dalet's the fourth number again. Four plus six plus four is 14. Abraham to David is 14. David's the 14th mentioned. David's name equals 14. And so then Matthew keeps with this 14 thing. And what he's telling the people is I'm doing this on purpose because I'm telling you in every Jewish way I know how, this is the son of David. This is the Messiah. And modern people will say, but he can't do that. He left names out. But Ancient Jews did do that. This was a common thing. That's why we have a name for it. And so they wouldn't read this and say, why is Matthew doing that? They would read this and say, that's pretty cool. Very clever, Matthew. And they would say, we get it. Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. That's what you're saying. Okay. Now, Matthew, you have the rest of the book to prove it, which he will. But that's what's going on with this. So I just thought that was really cool and wanted to share it with you. So when people say 
that Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom, they're not exaggerating. Why? Because Matthew uses a bunch of different ways, clever ways, to tell you again and again that Jesus is the king. He is the true and the new David. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. So as we come to the end of this, I pray that we will walk away with one key truth that Jesus is the long-awaited hope of Israel and the world. And if you don't know Jesus, then you need to come to him today because he's your only hope. Apart from him, there's no hope, okay? What the New Testament is going to show us is Jesus comes into this world, born of a woman, born under a law, born in the same conditions as the old humanity, us, but without sin. And then he lives a perfect life, never sinning once, being the only human to do what God requires all the time. Right? But then what does he do? He dies. The one person who should have never died, who didn't deserve to die, he dies because he takes our penalty and he puts it on himself, paying our price, paying the penalty for us, and then he dies. But is that how the story ends? Just Jesus paying our price? No, he rose on the third day as the first fruits of the resurrection. He rose with indestructible life. Now he's that new humanity. In order to bridge the old humanity to the new humanity, Messiah had to come under the old and die for us and raise as the new so then he can make us the new with him. That's how he does it, right? And that's how he's going to usher us in and bring us in to the perfect age to come. So simply put, if you don't believe on Jesus, you're still in your sins and he won't come as your savior. He will come as your judge. But if you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus in faith, all your sins are forgiven because he paid it on the cross and you get the credit of his righteousness. That is the gospel of the kingdom. And that is what is offered to you. So unbeliever, if you're here, don't walk away still as an unbeliever. Come talk to, to me or any of the leaders and we'll tell you more. But all you have to do is, is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead turn from your sins and do that and believe that, you'll be all right. Now, I'll close with an exhortation for we who do know Jesus already. He, even though you've been walking with Jesus for some time, he is still your long-awaited hope. When you are feeling beaten by this life, remember that all the promises are a yes in Jesus. When times are tough, remember that Jesus, the high priest, knows what it's like to suffer. And so he could sympathize with you. When you are tempted to think that the world is out of control, remember the announcement made in our text. The world is not out of control. It is progressing exactly like God has planned. In the fullness of the time, Messiah came. The one who brings the perfect age has come. He is already, if you believe, he has already freed you from the power of sin and death. He has already given you the credit of his perfect righteousness, if you believe. You don't think he's going to finish the work he began in you? Of course he will. Remember, he says no one could snatch us out of his hand. He promised he will not even lose one sheep that the Father gives him. So let this text and message strengthen your hope. There's nothing for you to apply from a genealogy, okay? Well, I guess I need to go begat someone. No, no, this is not telling you to apply anything. It is trying to give you hope and let that hope then govern and, 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 and energize your life for Christ, so let this message, let this text strengthen your hope. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David, son of Abraham. He is resurrected with indestructible life, and he rules the universe right now. You are in his hands. Remember that. Never forget that. He goes with us as we go out for him, declaring this good news to the lost. So may we do so. We're going to pray, and then I'll give the communion warning, and we'll have one more song.
So let's go to the Lord. God, we thank you for the book of Matthew. I thank you for the significance of what you announced after 400 years of silence. And I also find it significant that it was 400 years of silence when 